Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse live stream podcast number. Wow, did I forget to look it up? Uh, it is. It does have a number. It is numbered. It is numbered. Yes, we've um, decided to number these. Yes, and it's in the one, still in the one sixties somewhere. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah it's one sixty-two. One sixty-two. I think, if if my notes are correct. Okay. Well, I, I presume your notes are correct. Um, we'll mandate it. We'll we'll uh, we by fiat. It's number one sixty-two. No issue of primeness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you are, it's a great point. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. You are Dr. Heather Hying. And, uh, we are, uh, we are here hosting. We have plenty to discuss. I should tell you, I am not, as you well know, not totally on my game. Having just recovered from COVID. Yes. COVID. Do you remember COVID thing? You know, I was going to drop that into our discussion here in a way that was going to be surprising surprising yeah okay well having just had covid it may still be surprising to me at least um not being entirely on my game um well i have stepped on uh on that presentation but i will say uh it is i had one rough night treated it aggressively from the get-go uh spent five days in isolation on feeling horsey uh, I did not take horse pace proper, but I certainly did take some medications that uh, are well understood by those who well understand things uh, to to address COVID symptoms. Be useful to uh, treat a wide variety of problems in both people and other organisms, including horses. Right, including horses. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but anyway, I will say I had a very mild case it was quite annoying in the sense of you know every time you get sick with this disease you have to think about how much uh damage it does and although it's not a very dangerous disease uh to those of us who are healthy at this point it is certainly does damage across a wide number of systems which is troubling and you know as we talked about extensively at the beginning of the pandemic there is this question. Those who called this thing forth from a bat cave and enhanced it have inflicted something on us permanently. And okay, so maybe you get COVID every year or two and it compromises a week of your life. And presumably for reasons that we will talk about later on the, in the podcast, uh, accelerates uh, your rate of aging across multiple tissues. I'm sorry, Zach, can I get a towel? The cat just spilled a bunch of water all over the deck. Um, this is not as bad as the pandemic, but it's bad. <laughs> so I admit that. I find my computer maybe about to fritz out because I got a situation. Anyway. Computer? Well, it's just, it's on the cords and such. Just You can just throw it to me and I'll just deal with it. We're good. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, you were talking yes, about... Yes, we were talking about the tissue damage. But anyway, my point is, one of the things that I said early on in our discussions was that the cost of the pandemic, no matter how mild this disease gets, is effectively indefinitely large if we let it get to the point that we are permanently stuck with COVID. And that is where we appear to be. It is now people, even people who believed that it might be addressed and driven to extinction early no longer believe that. I no longer think it's possible with current tech to drive it to extinction. And so anyway, there's a point about what if we just take all of my future cases of COVID until I am gone from whatever uh, thing ultimately takes me out, right? How many weeks of my life are going to be compromised by somebody's idiotic decision to in- 
gauge and gain of function research on uh, bat coronaviruses, right? That's a huge cost, even just to me personally. And then if you scale that up across all of the people of the earth who are going to be suffering from something, even if it's just cold-like, right? If you have seven more colds in your life that are the result of Anthony Fauci, right? That's a pretty big cost for one dude to inflict on you personally um, for his own idiocy. Yeah, and, and that's that's the the least of what might be going on. And that is the least. And again, as I will discuss later on in the podcast, a proper model of the biology underlying this says that it's not just the weeks that you lose because you're sick. That is all borrowing from your lifetime capacity to repair your own tissues. And so the point is it is accelerating your rate of death. The, re the reason most of us do not reach the maximum human age is that over the, a lifetime, we spend the resources that might get you to 120, fending off, you know, flus, damage, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and anyway, so they have now added another one. Even if it's a mild disease that we get periodically and it's just annoying, the cost is still uh, arbitrarily huge. This is absolutely true. And, um, and of course, it's also true that, um, you know, it, it's hard to meet anyone now or to hear of anyone really who hasn't had it at this point. And so, you know, many people, you know, most people have some sort of a mild case and, and it's fine, right? They appear to be fine um, with all of the caveats that you've just made. Um, but even, even then, many, many people will report feeling like this isn't like other viruses. This isn't like other respiratory infections that I've had. It feels different. It feels it feels alien in a way. And you know, of course it you know, it's it's a Franken virus. So uh you know that's not all that surprising. But the idea that it might it might just be, oh, we've introduced another thing that's gonna circulate indefinitely and you're gonna be exposed to it and you're gonna get it indefinitely. Um, it's really unlikely that it's gonna be that that shallow a uh, an, an impact so let's just say uh what we're some of the stuff we're going to talk about today um are some um you, you've got a, a couple little clips uh from the uh the excellent john campbell to show and discuss uh some of the implications uh with regard to uh COVID and the pandemic uh i'd like to following that i'd like to talk about a paper um a paper that was published i guess it's last month uh, purporting to show that while infections, COVID infections are higher after you've been vaccinated than after you've had COVID itself, uh, visits to emergency rooms and hospitalizations and deaths are higher among the un, among those who have natural immunity but aren't vaccinated as opposed to those who are vaccinated. So I want to just that seems like a, a, a that's certainly a very important result, if so, and uh, contradicts what a lot of us have been suggesting. So I want to walk through that paper a little bit. And uh, and then if we have time, I'd be interested in talking a little bit about um, stigma, stigma and shame, uh, based on a recent piece that I read and some things that are sort of happening in in the cultural space around around various behaviors and predilections that people have, and uh, it it seems to have become um, de facto accepted that if you say, "Oh well, now you're shaming that person, now you're using shame," uh, that this is that this is absolutely you know, it's beyond the pale. It's an right? indictment in and of itself. It's an indictment in and of itself. If you're using shame, then uh, then obviously we, we like we're, we're done here and. Uh, I want to I want to explore that 
that question. Uh, and then you're probably probably that could get us through a, lo a lot of time. And there's a few other things we could talk about, but but probably won't. Um, so before we get into all of that, let's do just a little top of the hour stuff, uh, which is to say that we follow these live streams. Normally, we did not last week, but we are this week with a Q&A, live Q&A. You can ask your questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. We also start the Q&A every week with a question from our Discord community, our wonderful Discord community, where they vote on a question every week. And that's where we start. And uh, if you're interested in being part of that wonderful community, you can access it at either of our Patreons. And they have uh, they have conversations in text, in audio, in video. They have uh, karaoke. They have happy hour. They have book clubs. There's a lot of great stuff going on there. And we encourage you to check it out. Um, also, at uh, your Patreon, you have uh, conversations uh, once a month, two, two conversations once a month for the higher tier patrons. And, uh, and we at my Patreon do a monthly private Q&A. And right now you can ask questions for the monthly private Q&A at my Patreon. Uh, so that's some of the stuff that's happening right now. Uh, if you are watching live, you can watch on YouTube. Uh, YouTube did demonetize us, so we get there is no benefit to us if you watching on YouTube. Uh, but uh, we are also streaming on Odyssey, and that's what the chat is, if you want to join the chat. Uh, if you are looking for reading that reminds you of what we're doing here, we, of course, wrote Hunter Gathers Guide to the 21st Century, uh, which we encourage you to, to take a look at. And I write weekly at Natural Selections, which is uh, my substack. That's uh, naturalselections.substack.com. This week, I wrote about the explorations of salmon, uh, including a little bit about uh, the kokanee, who are the sockeye salmon who lose their anadromy. Wow, that was a lot of words in one sentence that sound like jargon. So <laughs> kokanee is, just, is, is the word that we have decided to use for this one species of salmon, sockeye, um, at the point that they are no longer taking the journey out to sea and spending most of their life there and then returning to reproduce and then die. And that, that life history strategy of being born in freshwater and going out uh, to salt water to live most of your life and then returning back to freshwater is called anadromy or an anadromous lifestyle on the kokanee. Um, and it seems to have evolved a strategy that's evolved multiple times in these sockeye salmon have lost their anadromy. They are um, effectively uh, landlocked. And even in some cases, maybe uh, where the, 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 the landlockedness has disappeared, uh, the kokanee lifestyle persists. Um, but there's also some cases, uh, at least one case where um, they were they were blocked by uh, by a dam, and then there was an option to to move out downriver, and some of them took it. And two years later, right on schedule, some of them came right back. So it's like this toggle, it's like genetic toggle. That was a like, human dam. That was a human dam. Yeah, that was not a beaver dam or a salmon dam, which doesn't happen. Well, the thing is, <laughs> or just a like a like a landslide dam. I can't resist oh, pointing out that the reason that this kokanee strategy, no, you look like I'm setting you up for a pun, which as I, far as I, if I am, I have, I'm even setting me up for it because I don't know yet. But I don't feel for you. I, feel the, like I do not feel your pain in this no. regard now. Um, the, uh, the strategy whereby you lose your anadromy, that is you stop going out to sea, um, is likely the result of the fact that during glaciation, many of yeah. these waterways are blocked by uh, ice dams. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, it's not surprising in this landscape, which is so heavily modified by glaciation, that even in during this interglacial where you don't see the causal effect, the selection for the yeah. ability to become landlocked and persist that way. And if you've 
got a really good yes persist that way is is not surprising yeah no and this is this is analogous to um you like these mexican cave fish that live in these systems where there are underwater caves and um, and sometimes a cave will collapse and a lineage that had lost its eyes is now living in sunlight and they, it's it's a pretty easy toggle. They can just become eyed again, not individuals, but you know the next generation can have eyes when when their parents didn't. Um, but you would not expect that to exist in some in some lineage in which something happened um, that doesn't repeat throughout history. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, oh, okay, the eyes were just a hazard, no help, they lost them because getting poked in the eye is a, you know, is a risk, and so they don't have eyes anymore. Oh my good, goodness, the light came back. Well, there's gonna be some lineages where there's that flexibility, that plasticity does not, um, does not persist. All right. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. You can also get. Yeah, I was trying to mop up the uh, error from the cat with this lovely tote bag. The error from the cat being water. <laughs> for those of you joining late. Yes, yeah, so it was just water. He's just not. But um, here's the other cat. This is the epic tabby um, tote bag, which we've got at our store at darkhorsestore.org, um, and uh, there's lots of good stuff there. Okay. Um, the only thing remaining before we get into the meat of the show is our sponsors, whom, with whom we are so pleased and very, and about which we are very grateful. I at which lost. We are asking. very grateful. Yes, we're being grateful to you guys now. Thank you. Okay, we've got three three ads at the top of the hour as usual. That's the wrong piece of paper. God. Just go with it. That's, that's my. Is notes there anything the terrible show. on it? It's the notes for the show. I just don't think it's no. going to be the same thing. Um, okay. Our first sponsor this week has become a favorite here at Dark Horse. It's House of Macadamias. That's right, nuts. Tree nuts are delicious and nutritious. They are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates, which is increasingly understood to be both satiating and good for you. But each species of nut is different, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, however, and because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. Between the taste and the health benefits, though, they're worth it. They have fewer carbohydrates and than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, and two-thirds of what almonds have, which makes them the perfect snack for breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitoleic acid, an unsaturated fat that has been linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. And as we've said before, I've got the references right here in case you guys want those. Um, House of Macadamias is intent on making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They've partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan, keto, and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate-dipped macadamias and a delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts in flavors including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. Our favorites are the simply delicious salted macadamias made with Namibian sea salt. They are amazing. We love them and think that you will too. Our House of Academias highly recommends House of Macadamias for all of your macadamic needs. Looking for something to nourish and energize you while in pursuit of the truth or while climbing the next summit? Well, go to www.houseofmacadamias.com and use code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on every order that you make, not just your first one. Plus, Dark Horse listeners will receive a complimentary four-ounce bag of macadamias when they order three or more boxes of any macadamia product. Once again, that's www.houseofmacadamias, that's M-A-C-A-D-A-M-I-A-S, dot com. Use code DARKHORSE for 20% off every order. 
you won't be sorry. So here's a question for you. All right. Uh, adaptively speaking, mm. slowest growing nut. Why would that be? And here's my thought. Yeah, you, did, you, you mentioned something there. No, just the very long time to grow. Very long time to. Yeah. All right, maybe not slow. And I don't. And I, that doesn't necessarily mean slowest growing nut. It may just mean a long time to set to set seed, or to to set. Um, irregardless. Okay. <laughs> irregardless. Here's the adaptive hypothesis okay. for you. Because they grow in such marvelous locations, waiting isn't a problem. Oh. You see what yes. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're also really delicious when they're done. So, you know. Yeah. It's a big reward. Yeah. You get to hang out in this beautiful place while you're waiting. The waiting isn't so bad. Exactly. Now yeah. you're seeing it. Okay. Now you're, now you're there. I, I feel like the people at House of Macadamias know this. They probably do. Yeah. And yeah. yes. Yeah. And I envy them if they... Yeah. Work where these things grow. Yeah. All right. Our second sponsor this week is Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative made with four medicinal mushrooms plus herbs and spices. With one-seventh the caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. And it's delicious. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning but don't drink coffee or trying to cut down on your caffeine, try Mudwater. Maybe you resolve to drink less coffee in the new year but are realizing halfway through February that it's not quite working. If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day, a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try mud water. Each ingredient to mud water was added with intention. It has cacao and chai, lion's mane mushrooms, cordyceps, chaga and reishi, turmeric and cinnamon. Mud water also makes... Yes, you have something to say? Okay. Our Mudwater does not make anything for the cats, which apparently is what is upsetting Tesla right now. Mudwater, however, makes a number of delicious things for people, including a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT, and a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lacuma, which is the fruit of an Andean tree used by the Inca. You can add either of those if you prefer those options. You can also mix and match. Maybe add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer, which is really quite good, with some honey from your favorite bees. Or if you don't have favorite bees, get some honey from your favorite beekeeper. And if you don't have a favorite beekeeper, I suggest you get one. We don't have one, though. Where's the pity? We will soon. I hope so. Or use mud. Actually, I think we do. I think we have, we have, a, friend, we have a friend who keeps bees outside of Austin. Yes. 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 And an and ape apiarist. He is an ape apiarist, yes. yes. Yes, as most beekeepers are, as far as I know. Um, let's see. There's some... Um, yeah. Honey guides don't really keep bees. No, they don't. Yeah, honey badgers are the opposite. Not so much. Yeah. yeah, okay. So all the apiary, ap apiarists are apes, mm -hmm. I think. Okay. Or use Mudwater's Lacuma and Coconut Palm Sugar Sweetener and skip the bees entirely. And you can just skip this entire part of this conversation if you do that. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmegs and cloves. Nutmegs. Nutmeg and cloves. It's also delicious, blended into a smoothie. Try it, I recommend this, with banana, ice, milk, or your favorite milk-like substance, mint and cacao nibs. Fresh mint, cacao nibs, yum. Really, really good. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, and it allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. So visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use code darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. That's darkhorsemud. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash darkhorse. Use darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. And here's a pro tip. 
for those who actually like the anxiety of coffee but want to do away with the rest, they can have mud water. And then what you do is you sprinkle Legos in the carpet and you turn down the lights. And that gives you the anxiety without any of the other downsides of coffee. All right. Our final sponsor this week is MD Hearing Aid which makes high quality, simple, effective hearing aids for a tiny fraction of what most hearing aids cost, helping bring audio clarity and capacity to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. MD Hearing Aid was founded by an ENT surgeon who made it his mission to develop a quality hearing aid that anyone could afford. He kept the price low by simplifying the product, removing several rarely needed components, and he made a product that aims to fit so well that no one will know you're wearing it. Other features include rechargeable batteries that last up to 30 hours, water resistance and up to three feet of water and the Volt on the Volt Plus model, and you don't need a prescription to get one. MD Hearing Aid has cut out the middleman, so you buy your hearing aid directly from the source, where audiologists and licensed hearing specialists are available seven days a week. Everyone can empathize with what it feels like to be left out of a conversation that others are enjoying. Here's a testimonial from a friend of ours who has substantial hearing loss and who relies on hearing aids. We asked her to try this product, and here's what she said. Quote, with my particular type of hearing loss, a deep male voice in a noisy room is the hardest situation for me to hear and understand speech. I wore the MD hearing aid to have a conversation with a deep-voiced male in a room with a lot of white noise. The MD hearing aid passed the test as my conversation partner's voice was clear and understandable. At a price point of under uh, $1,000, I was amazed at how effective they are. End quote. MD hearing aid is bringing affordable hearing to hundreds of thousands of people who might not otherwise be able to afford high-quality hearing aids. Get clinic-level care for 90% less with MD Hearing Aid, which offers a 45-day risk-free trial and money-back guarantee. Go to mdhearingaid.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy-one-get-one deal. A pair of hearing aids costs just $149.99. Plus, Dark Horse listeners receive a free extra charging case, a $100 value. So head to MD Hearing Aid, M-D-H-E-A-R-I-N-G-A-I-D.com and use the promo code DARKHORSE to get their new buy one, get one deal, a pair, a pair of hearing aids for only $149.99. All and right. There we are. There we are. Uh, so to the, to the meat of the show, you wanted to start, I believe. Yeah, I wanted to do a couple things, and I let me uh, frame this properly here. I think one of the things that we learn in watching how our material goes into the world, what sort of impact it has on people, what sorts of challenges come back at us, one of the things that we learn is how our understanding of the way something like science functions is different from what most people think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to us, the bread and butter of science uh, is in the predictive power. But even that doesn't quite explain what science is and why it works the way it does. And in order to really understand its role in civilization, its, its role in pushing civilization forward, one has to get into the nitty-gritty of the philosophy of science. What is the product? Mm -hmm. And so, in any case, I want to get at the question of what is the product by looking back at some 
things that I and we have said over the course of the pandemic that now exist in a very different light as a result of work that has emerged very late. In this case, I want to talk about a couple of things that were discussed by John Campbell, who is, uh, I will speak only for myself, but he is one of my favorites during the pandemic. He's extremely rigorous and careful, and he manages to navigate some of the most difficult territory in the pandemic um, with... uh, uh, spectacular aplomb, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, my overarching point is going to be that the product of science, the good product, the thing that we want, the reason that we go through the effort of science is not what you think it is. The product of science is not data. The product of science isn't even evidence or experimental results. The product of science is models. Now, I have to add a caveat right there, because you and I have said some very disparaging things about models. They're a different kind of model. The model to be super cautious about are computer models, right? Where you put into a computer that oversimplifies, especially the biotic world, some sort of a set of algorithms. You feed it something that is like uh, data And then it spits out a projection of what's going to happen. A climate model might be a very sophisticated uh, computer mechanism for predicting future temperature. And they are fraught with danger because uh, what those who build models know is that the more complex a model is, the easier it is for it to mirror some behavior for completely the wrong reasons. So although it looks like an accurate rendition of the world, it is not capable at all of predicting anything accurately about the future because it is basically just mapping onto the past and then your assumption will be that it will work in the future. So I'm not not talking about computer models. Go ahead. Uh, Just uh, the fewer fewer inputs a model has, the broader it will be and the less predictive it will be, even if the inputs are entirely accurate. And so it doesn't have as, as, uh, as much utility. The more inputs it has, the more narrow it's going to be and the more likely some of the inputs are to be wrong or maybe most to the point here, which is what I thought you were going to say, um, your inputs are inherently um, riddled with whatever assumptions you have. And you know, you, we, are, we are trying always in science um, to figure out ways to reduce bias. And because we are human beings always doing the science who have bias and who cannot completely escape our own bias, we are looking to, uh, we, we are looking c- to control for that bias. But what you plug into a model um, will be based on what assumptions you have. And so it is um, often disingenuous for people to say, my goodness, look what that model just spit out, when in fact what it spit out is exactly the biases that you plugged into it in the first place. Right. That is one of one of the ways that a, a model can appear to be accurate and yet be inaccurate in the sense that it predicts nothing going forward, that it maps properly onto, onto the past um, for no good reason. Um, so you want the simplest, if you were going to do computer models, you want the simplest model that manages to predict something going forward. But the predicting going forward is the key. And what what I have said is the only valid use of a computer model is not to test something, but it is to create a hypothesis, which you would then need to go yeah. test in the empirical world. But put that aside. The point here is the product of science, the correct product of science, are models that work. Right, And I don't mean computer models. I mean models like a model of the atom in which something called electrons 
have a negative charge. They orbit a nucleus, which is positively charged, composed of two components. They orbit in something called orbital uh, shells, which have different shapes. And this is not an exact description of the, of the atom, but what it is, is a highly predictive model of an, of an atom that tells you a lot of what will happen when you combine atoms in different uh, combinations and ratios under a wide range of conditions. And then at some point, mm -hmm. the difference between the model and whatever the underlying reality is causes you not to be able to predict certain things. And that's where we are with something like the excellent model of the atom we have. It's imperfect, but it's right. very good for most circumstances. So like those orbital shells, like shell is metaphor. And it is, um, you know, it's, it's not... It is almost certainly not true that it's in these sort of like concentric uh, spheres going out from from the nucleus, uh, but it it works up to a point, and then at the point that it stops being predictive, or you start throwing errors when you put different parts of of the model against one another, then you know you need an upgrade. Right, and. Um you know, even electron, right? An electron is a thing, right. but what sort of a thing is it? Mm -hmm. Well, even that has a degree of metaphor to it, right? So sophisticated versions of the atom treat the position of the electron not as a point, but as a probability. Right. And so the point is your models have to get more and more elaborate in order to deal with the subtle nuances. Um, and, you know, we see this again and again. Newtonian physics is a model of the universe that works really well at low speeds, um, but, you know, it breaks down at higher uh, levels. But anyway, the point is, it's the model. Do you want to figure out what's going to happen on a pool table when you input forces in a particular way? Newtonian physics is a good model, right? It'll tell you what happens on a pool table pretty, pretty effectively. Um, but... In science, we have to push the models farther and farther in order to predict the really subtle stuff. And I did want to give one example, a famous example, of how the product of science is not the uh, uh, the data, mm -hmm. right? It's the models. And I was going to use Einstein's prediction about the effect that gravity has on light, right? It is very counterintuitive that light should be affected by gravity because this effect is so weak mm -hmm. that in normal space, we don't experience anything that is remotely affected by it, right? In fact, the earth isn't really big enough uh, to have this effect. You need something gigantic like the sun to exert enough of this very weak force to actually impinge on light sufficiently that you could measure it. But the point is the test of relativity involved the requirement of an eclipse, which happened in 1919, Two expeditions were sent to remote places where the eclipse would be total. One of them was an island off of Africa, I believe. One of them was Brazil. And the idea was, if Einstein is correct about relativity, and that doesn't mean perfectly correct, but it means more correct than the model he proposes to replace, mm -hmm. then the following thing will be true. The position that we know for the stars that are right behind the position of the sun will be altered by the sun's presence. That's true with or without the eclipse, but you can't see it because the sun is so bright. You need the eclipse to darken the sun in order for you to see the stars move as a result of the gravitational lensing of the light bending around the sun. So, all the scientists knew that this was a prediction of the model. Yeah. They can't very well create an eclipse. 
They can't work with anything smaller than the sun in order to get the, the effect. Stars when there's no eclipse. Right. And so the point is, hey, guess what? Natural experiment. It's coming, but we need to be in the right place. We got one, only one option until, until 1930 something, right? I think right? actually 1937 is the okay. I think, I think. But anyway, so the point is, okay, natural experiment. Um, they send these two expeditions. Lo and behold, the position of the stars moves exactly as Einstein predicts that it will, based on what we understand to be the size of the sun and its gravitational force. Hooray. But the change in the position of the stars when the sun happens to be right there in the sky and the moon happens to be blocking the light is useless. There's no value to it. Sure. it. All it is is evidence that this model that Einstein proposes is correct. Now, once you have a model of relativity that's correct, then all sorts of other things flow from the existence of that now improved model, including mm-hmm. things, and I'd be hard pressed to explain how it works, but things like GPS depend on small relativistic differences in order to precisely pinpoint your position on the no, earth. I didn't know that. Um, I hope that's true. As always, we will find out if I've got it wrong. But nonetheless, the point is relativity has huge implications. It doesn't affect a baseball game. It doesn't affect billiards. It doesn't affect, you know, most of the stuff we do down here on Earth. But there are things that we do that now are impacted by it. And certainly our understanding of the universe and how big it is and in what way it moves is uh, all affected dramatically by this input. So the point is the product of that whole scientific process that, that, uh, Einstein went through where he hypothesized relativity and then it was demonstrated through eclipse. The point of that was not data. It was not even evidence. The point of that was, Hey, if he's right about the eclipse, nothing else predicts that his model It's not exactly right necessarily, but the point is his model contains some kind of truth that we didn't have before. And that means, well, now we can extrapolate from it about other things, right? Because we have reason to believe it contains a big chunk of the truth. Which brings me, of course, and obviously to John Campbell. Awesome. Right? So, all right, we're going to start with um, a paper that John Campbell reviews in the last week or so that is actually the report on a single autopsy of a gentleman, I believe a British gentleman, who died after COVID vaccination. If I recall correctly, he'd had three mRNA shots. And anyway, so this is a autopsy report that his family was concerned that his death did not appear to make sense. He was in his 70s. Um, Can you show that uh, clip from John Campbell? What's the autopsy one? It's yes. Okay. So we can say definitively that this damage was caused by vaccine, not by the uh, natural infection. Let's have a look at the proof for that now. So here we see the SARS coronavirus 2 virus that we're familiar with, the spike protein here, of course. Now, the spike protein can occur on the virus itself, or the spike protein is also generated by the vaccine. But the nucleocapsid protein is inside. It's associated with the RNA, the actual ribonucleic acid of the, of the virus. And the uh, nucleocapsid protein is only found in the virus. It's never generated by uh, a vaccine. So if you see spike protein on its own, that means it's vaccine. If you see spike protein and nucleocapsid protein, it means it's natural viral 
infection. That's the difference between the two. Now in this first slide we're looking at the, uh, the frontal part of the brain and we can see patches of uh, degeneration and uh, inflammation. On this next picture we can actually see acute brain damage as well. Uh, whenever there's a one that's a death of a nerve cell, neuronal death, and two is microglial infiltration. These are the defense cells in the brain and three are lymphocytes, which are associated with viral infection. And of course, all of these are pathological findings. None of them should be there. Does that where you want me to go? Yep. Okay, so um, I'm not going to translate this into English because John Campbell speaks English probably better than I do, but I am going to translate it uh, into slightly less technical language so people can get the full impact here. What we have is evidence of substantial, that is to say, visible on microscope slide, uh, brain damage in this now deceased patient. And the question is, why? What they found is spike protein in the area of damage. That's conspicuous, but that potentially has two different explanations. The vaccines produce spike protein, and the virus obviously produces spike protein. So in and of itself, that could be consistent with either. But what they in fact find is that spike protein is present and another protein, nucleocapsid protein, which we have discussed before, nucleocapsid protein being proteins associated with the genetic content of the virus, is completely absent, even though in normal virus, nucleocapsid protein is actually more prevalent than spike. So were this the result of a cryptic COVID infection, it would be that both proteins were present. And in fact, what we have is only the protein produced by the virus itself. But further, and this is the point, this is the reason I'm using this uh, particular clip from Campbell uh, in conjunction with this discussion of models. Further, what is shown in these microscope slides and in this report is the presence of T lymphocytes at the site of a brain damage, right? You've got dead neurons here, you've got spike protein, you've got microglial cells, and you've got T lymphocytes, okay? Now, all of that is actually the validation of the hypothesis that I put on the table I will have to look up when it would have been the first time I discussed it. But I presented a model for vaccine damage to the body. We've talked about it a number of times since. But the model says you've got lipid nanoparticles that coat an mRNA message that encodes spike protein. Those lipid nanoparticles coating this genetic message do not stay local to the injection site at least in some people, but probably all people. They escape into the circulatory system. They float around the body. And conspicuously, the vaccine manufacturers have no targeting mechanism whatsoever, which means they will be taken up by cells, I don't want to say randomly because it may not be random, but arbitrarily, cells that the vaccine manufacturers did not choose in any way. They didn't specify them as cells that you could afford to lose and therefore could afford to make this message and then suffer the consequences. And so what that means is that they will be taken up by cells in the circulatory system, very conspicuously in the heart, 
and then something terrible will very predictably happen. That very terrible thing is that the immune system will spot the cells of your own body producing a foreign protein, and they will make the only conclusion that your immune system could possibly make in that situation. Because that is exactly the marker for a viral infection where your cells have been hijacked by a pathogen and they start producing foreign proteins. And then the point is, in such a case, there's no rescuing such a cell. Once it has taken up this foreign message, killing that cell, even though that's bad, is better than the alternative. That's what the immune system is designed to do. Right. That's what it's for. Right. Hundreds of millions of years of evolution have built it to spot this very common phenomenon and to deal with it in the unfortunate but best way possible, which is to kill off the cells that have been infected. Mm -hmm. And so by creating a pseudo-infection, which is what these mRNA vaccines are, mm -hmm. They are effectively painting a target on cells in your body, whichever ones take up the lipid nanoparticle message, the lipid nanoparticle coded message. Um, they are targeting them for destruction and autoimmune destruction of your own cells. And worse, this would be a temporary phenomenon, but they stabilize the damn mRNAs so that they don't go out of functionality and return the cells to an innocuous uh, presentation that then stops triggering the immune system. Yeah. So anyway, here, what John Campbell has revealed and what that little clip shows is lo and behold, all of the things that you would predict from that model, which I spelled out, are true. You have... Uh, so the thing that you haven't said yet, the, the connection is that the T lymphocytes there in the brain next to the um, obvious brain damage is an indication that they, that they were there um, looking for cells that were spouting viral, um, viral messages. Viral message. So here you have damaged, you have a person who did not have an infection of the brain. We don't see any evidence of that here. What they had was a pseudo infection of the brain with the uh, mRNA messages encoded in the mRNA vaccines that was apparently transcribed in the brain into spike protein caused the immune system to freak out, as of course it would, to then target cells and kill them. And you have all of the, all of, you know, the only thing we don't have is a live movie of this happening. What we have is all of the consequences that you would expect, sure. all here in a, you know, in a static microscope slide. And the point is, look, that vaccine wasn't supposed to reach the brain, right? It wasn't supposed to get into the brain. That's already uh, a major design flaw. Having reached the brain, it shouldn't be particularly prone to transfect those cells. But of course, how would it not? It's a dumb particle. It's just covered in fat. It's going to transfect whatever cells will absorb it. Mm -hmm. And so here you've got a case. And yeah, it's only one case. But nonetheless, you've got a guy who has an, a vaccine injury that has produced brain damage that has left its signature, making it unmistakably the consequence of vac vaccine spike protein and not COVID spike protein. And you have the obvious activation of the uh, white blood cells countering what they must think to the extent that they behave like they think is an infection. So let me just try to um, <clears throat> steel man the opposition here. Um, is there, are there any known cases of SARS-CoV-2 in the body, the spike protein, uh, gets loose? 
Can the spike protein uh, travel on its own in the body? Do we have any cases of that? I think the answer is no. But so, you know, if it, if it could, then then you would see that signature that is otherwise a vaccine signature uh, somewhere. So I, that, I think that that's the only way, though, that this that this indication this you know this this smoking gun of either there's spike protein and nucleocapsid protein in evidence in the place where the damage is or if there's only spike protein then it's vaccine injury if there's both um it's it's virus injury it unless the spike protein can ever disassociate from the virus uh in in vivo and, well i would and bet that it does it. all the time because the you know the mechanism uh if you get, let's take the unusual nature of SARS-CoV-2 out of the picture, yeah. you get an infection with a coronavirus. Um, it invades some cells. It causes those cells to produce foreign protein. Uh, they, those cells produce new virus, which goes around infecting your own cells, trying to get out of you into somebody else. But what happens is as the immune system gets better and better at recognizing uh, the infected cells, it does break them apart. And so right. almost... So frag fragments. Fragments. Sure. But yeah. were but the, that but, the but case? If it's, if it's really, if it's just like broken apart fragments, you, it can't, it doesn't have any ability to mobilize. Well, it shouldn't be spike and no nucleocaps. You could imagine a weird ratio. You could imagine the spike protein is more durable. And so the nucleocapsid proteins get broken up at a higher rate, but they're produced in higher numbers to begin with. Yeah. They shouldn't be getting into the brain in the first place, right? Sure, so sure the, so but that's the, a different question. It may or may not be, right? So the point is you've got a pathology that flows from these mRNA vaccinations. One of the things that we talked about, for which I believe actually we were attacked by PolitiFact, I hope, I'm not sure it was PolitiFact, but somebody claimed to have fact-checked us on this, was the blood-brain barrier question about the fragmentation of the blood-brain barrier from the spike protein in the damn so-called vaccines. Yep. So anyway, the point is, look, is this proof positive? No. But proof positive isn't a scientific thing. Right. What this is, is a bunch of different predictions of a model that show up in a case, right? And then the point is, is this as good as, you know, an eclipse proving relativity? No. But what it is, is it's damn good evidence that that model was capable of looking into the future and predicting the results of somebody's autopsy. Right. Okay. Yep. So given that, and to get more um, evidence of the, of similar sort, un unlike in physics, uh, we don't have to wait almost 20 years. Right. And, okay, so then here's my point. Unlike in that particular instantiation right. of physics, right? That, that, yeah. One, yeah. that weird, very famous case. Yeah. Here's my point, okay? The payoff of all of this is not even the model, okay? The model is great. The fact that we now have a model that says not only do we have an effect right? This isn't correlation equals causation. This is, oh, here's a model that predicts damage in an individual, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. But now the payoff comes from the extrapolation. Now we can go back mm -hmm. to that model mm -hmm. and we can say, okay, if this model overlaps the truth substantially, which I think is probably the correct way to say it, right? What else does it tell us? Oh, well, here are the other things it tells us. It tells us that you have a completely indiscriminate transfection agent that is going to cause your own immune system to damage tissues arbitrarily around the body. And the effect of that will be that this isn't, it's not causing myocarditis. Yes, it causes myocarditis, but myocarditis is going to be 
one on a long list of pathologies, most of which, or maybe all of which are more subtle, in which various tissues around the body are damaged by your own immune system responding to this vaccine being uh, effective in places that the manufacturer um, either didn't anticipate or wasn't honest about. So what you mean when you say it doesn't cause myocarditis is that myocarditis and pericarditis being injuries to muscle associated with the heart, myo, or the pericardium, the, the membrane around the heart, peri, um, are going to reveal themselves more easily because of uh, the fact that the heart does not have repair capacity. See Brett's earlier work on telomeres and cancer and senescence, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to see first. That does not mean that it's the only damage that's happening by a long shot. The, the, the model says, and here we have evidence supporting the model with what you have revealed from John Campbell here, that the damage will be everywhere, depending on the particulars of, you know, whether your shot was aspirated, how healthy you were at the time, how healthy you are in general, exactly, you know, where, you know, where it went in your body and um, what other viral load you might have had at the time, et cetera, et cetera. Like all sorts of things are going to affect what tissues in you may have gotten affected, but were there tissues that were affected? A hundred percent, because actually that's the mechanism of action of the thing. Right. That's like that's, me- that, that's, that, that's the intended mechanism of action of the mRNA vaccines is that they will transfect some cells and then your immune system will come in and learn from them and figure out how to prevent future infection, which, of course, we now know doesn't work. Right. And in fact, uh, if you were to go to that before we had this particular result, if you were to say, well, you know, is it going to nail all tissues? Maybe not, yeah. right? There may be tissues which, for whatever molecular reason, don't take up the lipid nanoparticle very well, sure. so you could have little or no damage. I don't know that there are such tissues, but there could be, right? But if I was going to say, yeah, where would you expect an exception? Mm-hmm. The brain might be most likely because of the blood-brain barrier. But the okay. point is, oh, here you have it. You have the exact prediction of this model, which suggests that this is going to be happening. You're going to have itises all over the body, and the itises aren't just inflammation. That is inflammation that is downstream of damage. And the point is, okay, you could basically now name your pathology because you're talking about, you know, gee, which tissues are perfused with blood? Virtually all of them, right? Right, right. So the point is you can, in principle, get damage just about anywhere. And so... You know, the other thing that we now have to look at is how did we end up, you know, this has been a very painful educational process, figuring out what exactly they were proposing and what exactly it suggested might be the hazards. But now that we know, now that we can look back, this technology had no business being utilized in people. Right, not but because they've been trying for so long, Brett. Not because it isn't brilliant in principle. It solves a major problem, a gene therapy problem, which is how do you get enough genes into enough cells to actually treat a pathology? Okay, that's a difficult problem. Well, it it also solves a um, time of onset of pa- time of realization. There's a pathogen to. Uh, 
to oh. to realization of the treatment yep. problem. Like the, you know, so the, the, the times the time scale is is remarkable. And you right? can imagine you can imagine people who have a financial interest in this technology thinking, damn, we're so close. This this thing is really incredibly capable if we can just get past a couple hurdles. Oh, what will it take? Oh, about 50 years to solve the targeting problem and get through the regulatory proof that we've solved it well enough that we're not going to kill huge numbers of people, right? Can you wait 50 years? No, I'll be dead. Can you get it to me sooner? Um, and so that's the question is, did they utilize a global emergency? to fast forward, to get us not to notice that they had a targeting problem they couldn't solve, right? And to get this technology so mainstreamed that it's now like, oh, well, you know, get ready. We're going to start doing flu vaccines with the mRNA tech. Really? You still haven't solved the problem. And the fact it is, the, yep. model, the model that I presented, right, the model that we now have uh, some evidence turns out to be predictive of things like autopsy results, yep. that model... Um, says, actually, the pathology, nothing to do with COVID. Yes, it's bad that they chose spike protein. That's bad. Spike protein has its own added pathologies. So but, you mean the pathology from the vaccine? Yes. Has nothing the to do vaccine with pathology is simply about foreign proteins produced indiscriminately by human cells that then get targeted by the immune system, right? And so the point is, Okay, now you want to tell me you want to do other shots with this platform, that it's so marvelous, you still haven't solved the main problem that should have prevented you from injecting this into any people at all, right? You still haven't solved it. And now you're like, what else can we use it for, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's mind-blowing that we would be there, but that, that is where we are. And anyway, I do want to go back and just emphasize the fact that the model says heart damage may be noticed first, Heart damage may be more serious because it's your damn heart, right? It's not some big necrosis in your liver that you might well survive or not even notice, right? This is your heart. Any damage to it is serious, right? Um, it's not just that, but uh, the fact is this is a destroyer of future capacity for repair, right? So the mm -hmm. fact that myocarditis is predictive of other itises that are actually the result of damage, not just inflammation across the body, is the payload, right? Now we need to look for these things and we need to figure out, um, A, how to minimize the damage that's already been done to protect the people who have had these things, right? Maybe we need to in engage in some new kind of scanning to find damage that may catch these people unaware. Um, anyway, it's um, it, the payload is the model. The model predicts things well beyond the heart. And it is time for us to now be paying attention uh, because the evidence is uh, quite clear. And really also the onus is on those who say, well, it's one patient, right? It's not really very much evidence. Well, no. Now the burden of proof is on you to prove that that patient was highly anomalous rather than this is now something that we do see when we look elsewhere, right? You can't use the fact of not looking as a, as a falsification. How about we begin um, autopsies of um, <clears throat> people who've experienced unexpected death? Which we absolutely should have been doing and we're resisting doing for some reason deeply buried in the uh, catacombs of public health. Right. Right.
So you had another video you wanted to show. Yeah. If, if you can, I, I thought that was part of this, but if you want to wait until later, we can do that. No, no. Uh, okay. let, let's uh, let's introduce that one here. So this is actually a separate John Campbell video on a separate topic, also I believe in this last week, um, in which he, and again, he is among the most careful analysts of the COVID pandemic that I'm aware of. Um, but this one is quite shocking and also matches a different prediction uh, in a way. It's not quite as clear cut, but I, I think you'll, um, I think you'll see it. Hey, Zach, can you? Yep, you're right. Uh, yeah. Out of their guidelines here. Now, this is managing breathlessness. So this was published, remember, on the 3rd of April 2020. And they say this, consider an opioid and a benzodiazepine. Now, um, what they mean there is uh, an opium-based drug like morphine and the benzodiazepine they talk about is midazolam. Now, this is a classical, well-tried, trusted form of treatment that we use for uh, things like terminal agitation, part of terminal care when people are dying of conditions such as cancer and things that are incurable uh, to, to, to manage uh, a peaceful death. And it, it's completely the right thing to do in the vast majority of circumstances. But what seemed to happen was NICE just took that and transposed that into the COVID situation. And COVID, of course, we know is an infection and most people can get completely better from it. Was this a fundamental all right. Um, what John Campbell says here is that, and this is a British um, memo that he is unearthing here, a British memo from uh, April of 2020, in which a recommendation was made for the treatment of patients who have very serious effects from uh, COVID. These are hospitalized people who are clearly in jeopardy of death. The memo suggests the application of a two-drug protocol. One, an opioid um, like morphine, and the other, a benzodiazepine uh, like midazolam. And his point is, this is shocking to hear, because that combination is well understood and properly used in medicine in patients who have a terminal disease at the very end of their pathology that this is effectively palliative care that uh, allows life to be ended by prioritizing comfort in a patient for which there is actually no medical hope. And what John Campbell says here is this doesn't make sense in the context of a COVID patient, no matter how close to death they appear, because what they are sick with is an infectious agent that they might fend off, right? The fact is we have Which all- Which people do. Yeah, we have all had the experience of being very, very, very sick and then suddenly being on the mend and headed in the right direction. And what has happened is your immune system has figured out the formula sufficiently well that you go from a trajectory that if you followed it far enough would take you to death, right? And suddenly your trajectory is in the upward direction and you may not feel great, but you feel a hell of a lot better because you're on the mend. The, the uh, infection is being reduced. And his point is, look, that happens in people. So it does not ever make sense uh, to give a patient a uh, deadly, if compassionate, 
pair of drugs in the case that what they're sick with is an infectious agent that they actually might beat. And I will say the title of uh, his video involves the term euthanasia, which I struggled with a little bit because this is an official memo suggesting a use of this drug cocktail. This isn't the case in which somebody has said, well, this patient, you know, uh, should be uh, humanely put out of their misery. This is just medical recommendations that result in the same thing. Now, I don't know whether that's an accident or not, but I will say there's a, a segment, those who watched my last Joe Rogan uh, discussion, 1919, there's a section in there in which I become uncomfortable and I actually discuss my discomfort. I say, you will hear me hesitating to say this, but I can't help but wonder. I say something like, I keep revisiting the part of the pandemic in which we are applying ventilators to desperately ill people. Ventilators that we later came to understand were doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. They were actually killing people. And my thought, the thing that I was struggling to express to Joe was that one of the effects of using ventilators as the standard of care for patients who they actually harmed was that it drove up the number of people who plausibly died of COVID. And so from the point of view of justifying a draconian response to COVID, it made COVID look that much worse than it actually was. And again, I'm not saying COVID isn't a terrible disease. I think it's much more dangerous than the case fatality rate suggests. But nonetheless, driving the number of dead from COVID people up did cause all of the panic that then ensued that caused us to lock down and do ourselves damage that way, to mask children, all of the things that we did were downstream of the implication of the desperate seriousness of this disease. And we were induced to think this by many things, including fraudulent video out of China that misrepresented, uh, you know, people dying in the street, this sort of thing. Right. So anyway, this is not as secure as a autopsy result that matches a mechanistic model um, of the pathology that arises from mRNA vaccination, um, but it is another place where a prediction um, is now manifest. In other words, yes. I didn't see this drug combination thing coming, but it is perfectly consistent, right? The idea that uh, a standard of care that increases the number of people who die of COVID was not just one thing. It wasn't just ventilators. It was also... Uh, apparently, the, at least in Britain, the prescription of this combination of drugs and who knows how many other things, which is also consistent with a total failure to advise people about the hazard of vitamin D deficiency, a total failure to apply the drugs that we had that actually uh, were highly effective against many uh, mRNA uh, viruses like, uh, like ivermectin. Um, so anyway, it is again part of this pattern that is very hard to um, very hard to miss once you see it. Hmm. We do all sorts of things that appear to have increased harm rather than decreased harm. And you could imagine medicine is a difficult business. Sometimes you're going to do something thinking it will be helpful and it turns out to be the opposite. But when you start doing that across the board, you do everything that's unhelpful. It raises yeah. a question about why that happened. Yeah, no, and it goes... It goes on and on and on, as you say. <clears throat> you know, locking people in their homes um, 
away from the sun, away from the ability to do physical activity. Um, <clears throat> I recently ran into, again, a picture, I, I think maybe out of Italy somewhere, of uh, the police scooping up sunbathers because, <laughs> because those were the people who were at risk and putting other people at risk, right? Being alone outside, catching the rays and uh, generating vitamin D. And, um, you know, we had as, as obesity became clearly a comorbidity for this disease and a really strong one. And we talked about some of the really remarkable evidence for that. Uh, we had a resurgence of the idea of fat shaming as the problem. <laughs> Right. It's it's and again, you know, maybe we'll get there later in this episode, but like it, it's the it's the people who are shaming others um, that is the epidemic here. It's, it's it's not the fact that actually there are going to be, uh, regardless of whether you like it or not or think it's fair or not, um, mechanisms by which this virus is acting in your body that allows it to do more damage if you have a lot of fat on you. It's not fat shaming. It's not. Yeah. I remember uh, the sheer number of places where even just a basic understanding of COVID and how it transmits would have not only given you a different prescription, but the inverse yep. was stunning. And I remember you and I looking at each other. I, I think I remember a image that we showed probably of a newspaper article discussing how they were closing down the trails and the state parks and, mm-hmm. and the beaches. Yeah. Right. And we're just thinking you're actually going to harm people because if they're not outside, they're going home to an environment where somebody may have COVID mm-hmm. and they're going to catch it. Yep. Whereas if they had been outside yep. at that time, they would have virtually no risk. Of the catching. playgrounds strung with caution tape. For, they, for months and months and months, children weren't allowed to play on playgrounds. I believe they literally put sand in skate parks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, yeah, that's just ludicrous. I mean, that's that's like almost. Uh, for a little while, their skateboarding was a crime. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How did we not see that? Yeah. Um, but you're right. They made yeah. skateboarding a crime, mm-hmm. um, and just the sort of. Um, anti-fun you know kids weren't threatened right. by COVID in the first place right, right? And you're pouring right. sand in their damn skate park right you're, you're screwing up their world they can't go anywhere they're not going to school you're mm-hmm. going to take their skate park from them with sand like yeah you're just a terrible person <laughs> that's um, right that's right um go on so i did have two last things that i forgot to say i want to i just add in here so that it's all in one place so remember, the whole point of both of these examples... Can I just point out before you say it that what you've written there isn't English? No, it's not it's English. The, none of those are actually even here's letters what I've in learned. the alphabet that we use. Here's what I have learned <laughs> after years of living with myself. I've learned two things. Okay. One, I don't have any choice about that. I know. And two, you don't have much choice. You have more choice than I do, but I, I have some sympathy for you in this regard. But Thanks. the other thing is that when I write notes to myself, mm-hmm. the only question, they're not going to be readable. They're not going to be English. They're not going to be defensible to anyone else. The question is, at the point that I need to go to the note, do they convey enough that I can reconstruct my way back to whatever it was I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, I think so. Yeah, it hasn't been that long. That's that's the key to doing it, is you want to write the note and then find it within five minutes. Usually that's <laughs> short enough. 
Um, written language is just just a, a brilliant invention that uh, at some point you will be able to find. A I'm not all that compelled. That it, you know, I think written language is great. I just don't think English should have been one of them. Um, but that's the problem. Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah, English come, becomes crazy when you start to write it down. For one thing, they're all the doubled words. The that that's mm, drives me crazy. Does it? Yeah. Mm. Um, oh, it is because in speech you can distinguish between the two that's, but on paper you're just stuck with the fact that it's the same ASCII symbols repeated. So you want intonation introduced into the written language. And the way you do that is by not writing it and speaking it. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we had this conversation. I am too. I we are, we'd written we, it down, we are but... getting to the limits of my of the time period in which I can still. <laughs> but you, you don't think that's intentional on my part? It might be. <laughs> you, you may end up proving your point here. Yeah. Um, okay. No, I, I actually I actually can read the first word. I just don't know what's on the second line. The first word is model. The first word is model. Yeah. The second word is DNA. And then the third word is got it. It's attenuated. You don't say. Yeah. <laughs> I do say. No, I do say. Okay. Um, uh, okay. So what I wanted to just wrap this up with is the following thing. The fact of having, and we're lucky that it happened on camera, because that means that it's not just our say-so. We could go back and we could find the presentation of the model. But the fact of having models discussed early that then predict actual physical phenomena later on mm -hmm. or predict the revelation of evidence in the case of the second model here, the idea that yep. maybe there was not an attempt to reduce the number of COVID deaths early on. Um, the fact of having those models means that the things that get said to us about why we ended up right so frequently mm. are now falsified, right? The things being you got lucky, uh, a, a broken clock straight two times a day, that sort right. of thing. Everybody guessed. You guessed and you happened to guess right, but somebody would have guessed right. right. So this wasn't about insight. It was about you got lucky. Congratulations. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Right. That's sort of the uh, the Scott Adams version of things. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Sam Harris's version is you were right for the wrong reasons. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, no. When your model turns out to be predictive of autopsies, you're right for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it's just the way it works. And then there's the thing that gets said to us about, well, okay, you were contrarians. And really what they're saying, which frankly I would almost settle for because it's good enough to get where we need to go, is yes, the, what you were officially told was 100% wrong and a contrarian therefore didn't fall for any of it, which is not what happened in this case, right? You and I were very careful about, we didn't fall into any known camp, right? COVID is a dangerous disease. The vaccines are also dangerous and you're not actually trading one danger from the other. You're actually compounding them if you get the so-called vaccine. No, but I, so, you know, I, as you know, I have a particular sort of visceral reaction to the idea of contrarian. Uh, which you know has because it was being said uh, with affection in some cases, like it was <clears throat> people defending us saying, "Well, they, you know, they're contrarians." Like, no, 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 and no, uh, in part because um, I disagree that we didn't fall into a known camp. I, I understand what you mean by that, which is that uh, like, oh, well, the people who are skeptical of vaccines also think COVID isn't a big deal. Like that tended to be a, a, a two opinions that went together. And the people who were gung-ho on vaccines take COVID really, really seriously. That was also two positions that often went together. If you were just voting with ideology, if you were team blue, it was the latter. If you were team red, it was the former. And okay, but if like the, the, the camp that we fell into was camp science, 
right? That which is which is skepticism of those things that come at you until you can assess them using the tools that you have, using as many of the things that you can see or sense uh, with your own senses as possible, but also then you know trying it out, extrapolating, testing it against other things, looking at the papers. Which is what we'll do next. Looking, you know, looking at the papers that are being trotted out. It's like, oh well, but science says, boom, and I'm like, okay, I'll let, let's let's see what science says. Yeah, it doesn't. See here, this is where the bodies are buried. So you know, we did that kind of thing because we can and we do, and lots of people are trying to do that, and some people, you know, don't have a background in, you know, scientific jargon enough to make it through the papers. And um, we're more easily compelled. And, you know, some of those people went, actually, no, I can't assess that. And I know it, um, but I'm going to reject it out of hand. And some of, and a lot of people went, you know what, I can't assess that. Um, and I know that I can't assess it, so I'm just going to accept it out of hand. And both of those positions are understandable, but neither of them is what we did. Yep. And, well. and, and a lot of people didn't do that either. So it, it is a known camp. Um, which I'm just, I'm going to call it camp science. Well, okay. <laughs> it, it is, it is a distinction not worth, not worth fighting over the fact that it wasn't a known slate, right? There's obviously a method, but that's kind of the point is the method mm -hmm. involves building a model. And how do you know that that model is anything other than a lucky guess? Right. Well, it's predictive going forward, not just, yep. not, not just was it predictive in the moment. Yep. It's predictive even going forward. Okay. The last thing I want to say is, okay, so you've got a model. And then you have reason to believe that that model is accurate because it predicts things that are hard to predict. Like, will this gentleman's brain show uh, lymphocytes on autopsy? Yeah. Okay. And then here is what an extrapolation looks like. Not only do we have the, you're going to find damage across the body and you've only noticed it in the heart um, because heart failure is so conspicuous, but this is going to be pathology after pathology. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is this. The transfection technology that the mRNA vaccines utilized was in one way absolutely special, and in another way not that special. And it is the distinction between the special and the not special that tells us how to evaluate the relative risks, which we did correctly, okay? Mm -hmm. Everybody who is coming to realize how dangerous these vaccines are and were has focused on the mRNA vaccines, right? They are most dangerous. Why is that? Well, you and I said early on that the number of novel features involved in the mRNA vaccines was by far the highest. Mm -hmm. And therefore, even things like the DNA vaccines, which are truly novel, the DNA vaccines in this case, the, the adenovirus, the adenovirus vectored vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. Even those which are highly novel, right? That had not been done before. Mm -hmm. But even those are less novel by virtue of the fact that instead of using uh, lipid nanoparticle coats, which are completely untargeted, they borrowed targeting from a pre-existing virus that had an evolutionary history that therefore would have limited the places that are transfected to a uh -huh. smaller number of tissues. Yep. So not safe, but much safer. Mm -hmm. I would also point out- And, and we, we did, we were, we were when asked um, both by friends and family and and on air sometimes in the q a um you know if if you have to which one would you do and um in the us here the option was j and j 
right? And 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 that turned out to be correct in spades. Yeah. The yeah. Christine Stable Ben work shows yeah. uh, a slight all-cause mortality benefit for the DNA version. I don't know whether that will hold up over the long term because, of course, pathologies right. will eat away at that. But nonetheless, the point is you've got a spectrum of hazard. The mRNA, LNP uh, vectored transfection agents are the maximally novel, least targeted of all. Okay. Second, you have the DNA uh, adenovectored vaccines, which are highly novel, but have some sort of targeting that would have come from some virus that would have had some interest in keeping you on your feet right? Probably a pretty good interest. So they would not transfect nearly as indiscriminately. And then there are the best vaccines that we have, right? Which are attenuated virus vaccines. Why are attenuated virus vaccines the best vaccines that we have? Because they trigger a proper, not very serious infection that then causes the immune system to have the proper reaction to an infection. It's like a little practice infection so that you don't get the real infection, right? Mm -hmm. Is that cost-free? No, because the exact thing that I've said, this model where your own cells spot uh, what they regard to be as infected tissue and target it, that will happen in an attenuated virus vaccine, and it will happen in the adenovector virus vaccine. What is so different is the completely indiscriminate nature of the, of the lipid nanoparticle targeting, or lack thereof. So anyway, overarching message here is Product of science is models. The utility of models is that once you have reason to believe that they are accurate based on the fact that they predict things, you can extrapolate from them. And here are uh, two different extremely important extrapolations that come from the model that you and I develop here on air, right? One of them is the damage will be across the body and have implications well beyond the heart. And the other is that you can look at virus or vaccine technologies and you can specify how likely to be dangerous they are based on uh, the underlying model that we uh, discussed over the course of many, many episodes. Indeed. All right. Slight switch. Um, we didn't quite end where I was expecting us to, so I don't have the segue I was, I was expecting. Um, Zach, I'm going to ask you to show my screen off and on here a little bit. Uh, this week, many people will recognize. Uh, you can show it now. Uh, you are not giving me any useful video. I... No, 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 no. I have video from you, but you are extending your screen, so it's not. I see your desktop. I didn't change anything since we set this up. It's frozen. Um. So yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing has changed since. Um, and I'm. I'm sorry. I don't know why it's not. We are fighting a technical difficulty, a gremlin, as it were, and uh, it just goes on and on and on. Is it possible you can? So we could, set this up while he's uh, sorting the tech. No, that's the that's the setup. It's just a little preamble, um, which we can totally skip yeah, the preamble. Is working for me on your computer, so I think something's just frozen or something. Well, you know, I do have a new computer on order. Um, I would recommend restarting, but you're going to lose a lot of stuff. So I don't know. I can't get it to give me anything useful right now. Okay. Well, we are going to do this without me showing my screen at all. Um, it's unfortunate. 
I guess I can just unplug this then. <laughs> I don't need that. Um, okay, so this week, and I'll link these things in the show notes. This week, NBC, famously, um, put out this headline. Immunity acquired from a COVID infection is as protective as vaccination against severe illness and death, study finds. Okay, so they are citing a Lancet article, which I have actually not spent any time with yet. Um, and my first reaction to this was, well, it's about effing time, right? And uh, in response, some number of people point out that... Uh, Mother Jones. Remember Mother Jones? Mm -hmm. I loved that magazine. I loved it more than I loved the New York Times. And Mother Jones has fallen farther and harder. Mother Jones back in uh, May of 2020 had a headline, anti-vaxxers have a dangerous theory called natural immunity. Now it's going mainstream. <laughs> Quote, your body's an amazing being. It knows how to take care of itself. Okay, so that was Mother Jones. Wow. Incredible. I hope that that woman has an immune system that uh, is intact, but she doesn't seem to believe in it. The woman who wrote this. That's amazing. This, that's amazing, right? And then um, when I look, when I uh, search the New York Times for natural immunity, um, as you know, as the phrase natural immunity with the quotes, um, I get a December 5th, 2020 hit. Uh, natural immunity from COVID is not safer than a vaccine. Uh, so that's just the that's the conclusion. And then the second hit for natural immunity, when I look in the New York Times this week after NBC has revealed um, the results of this Lancet article, I have a hit from August 29th, 1954. Science in review, man's natural immunity to disease may be bolstered by two recent discoveries. Now, if you do scroll down in the natural immunity stuff, you do find a couple more things from the pandemic, um, but it's all about how natural immunity is basically an anti-vaxxers uh, creation. Okay, so we have this article out of the Lancet this week, which again I have not um, I have not spent time with. But one of the things that happens uh, as a result of the NBC of NBC putting out a headline like this is that people will um, put in the responses, yeah, but, right? Like, yeah, but this paper. And so one of the papers that I saw a few times come up uh, was this, and again, uh, apologies, I can't. I think if you plug it back in, it might work. Okay, we're going we're gonna to try this. Um, so hold on, let me find a, a thing that I might want to show now. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I see your screen. Okay, I've got the beach ball of death. Just yeah, yeah, hold yeah. on a minute. Um, that's always fun. Okay, nope. Give it a second. I guess. Uh, so this paper uh, comes out in. I just don't. I've now lost access. Okay. Not working very well. Um, well, let me know if you want me to show. You can show my screen now. So this paper comes out. It was published first online in December of 2022. It was officially published early this year. So uh, Wanzu et al. 2023 published in the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, hospitalization, and death in vaccinated and infected individuals by age groups in Indiana, 2021-2022. It's a it's a big study. 
and they specifically went to look at it's it, it would appear um, that they were looking at some of the same things that the Lancet study that's now being reported on by NBC were looking at, which is, again, in the abstract, the objectives to assess the effectiveness of vaccine induced immunity against new infections, all cause emergency department visits and hospital visits and mortality in Indiana. And that's, Indiana is just because that's where they had access to this giant, giant data set. And so, again, they're looking at four things. They're, they're saying, OK, we got people who are vaccinated. We've got people who've had prior uh, COVID infections but aren't vaccinated, and we're going to compare what, who does better in terms of getting infected with COVID in the future? Who does better in terms of getting um, emergency, uh, they call it emergency department visits. It's ER, basically, right? ER visits. Um, how about hospital visits, which I think what they mean by that is hospitalizations um, and, and death and mortality. So You've got these four measures, and am I, is my screen not working anymore? I think it just physically disconnects over there, but you're going to need to. Um, let's just uh, just assume it's not going to work. Uh, so they have this paper. This paper is not brilliantly done at the. Um, at the editing level, and so they've got a lot of figures that don't have. Uh, they don't have explanations, and they've got a whole section of the of the results that seems to refer to the wrong figures in the wrong way. Um, but ultimately, what I what I find, and this is this is where I would really like to be able to show you guys the uh, the the data here, is that across all age groups, uh, and what and you know what they what they did was they tried to basically control for they tried to match they did what they're calling a matched cohort design, where they looked at various indicators of health, and they kind of kind of ranked them and some of their rankings were a little dicey like uh, obesity was you know an issue but not very big issue and like of course for COVID it's actually a really big issue so I'm not sure why they ranked things the way they did, but they took this you know giant data set out of health systems in Indiana in Indiana um, of vaccinated people. And this giant data set, um, sometimes overlapping in terms of where they were from, what hospital systems they were from, of people who uh, are not vaccinated but have had COVID. And they say, okay, we're not going to compare really sick people with really not sick people. We're going to try to match, uh, we're going to try to match the cohort. And what they appear to have found is that with regard to infections, just like with this uh, Lancet paper that again I have not directly assessed, but which was uh, uh, which was promoted on NBC this week, uh, you find actually lower lower infection rates among those who have previously had COVID than among those who have been vaccinated, considerably lower in across all of all of the um, age classes. However. Um, across all of the age classes, uh, for each of the other three measures that they're looking at, that is to say, um, basically emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and deaths, uh, you have higher risk of these bad outcomes if you only had a case of COVID earlier, and it's all cause mortality, so they're not trying to attribute this to COVID or you know, to the vaccine, certainly. Um, you have a higher risk of ER visits, of hospitalizations, and of death uh, more than a month, but less than the end of the study out from having had COVID um, than if you had been vaccinated. So that's what they find. And that seems you know, pretty damning of much of what, what it is that we are um, 
much of what we have said about the vaccines. Uh, and again, uh, you know, if true, damning of what we have said. Yeah, exactly. And um, again, I'd I'd love to show you all of all of their all of their data. Um, but the the bodies are buried, unfortunately, maybe almost literally, in in this paper here. What they have done is they have taken publicly available data. And they have said that the two populations that they have compared is vaccinated people and people with past COVID infections that weren't vaccinated. But the only people they have access to, the only records they have access to are people with records, are people who are in the health system because they had COVID among that second group. So whereas if you've been vaccinated against COVID, you are inherently in the system as someone who has been vaccinated against COVID because that is a medical intervention. Therefore, the entire population of vaccinated people in Indiana is potentially included in this, in this data set. The vast number of people who were not vaccinated against COVID and who got it and didn't seek medical help for it, or who weren't otherwise sick and went to get care and got a COVID test and it was discovered that they were positive, are not possibly represented in this analysis. Anyone who is unvaccinated and had COVID and recovered, like you this week, like our son Toby this week, who took a at-home test, went, holy cow, that's the first time I've actually got a positive test, right? You got two positive tests. Toby got a positive test. And we know lots of people like that, right? I didn't happen to get COVID this time. But, you know, lots and lots of people who are not vaccinated have gotten COVID because basically the entire world has gotten COVID at this point. And the vast majority of us never go and get an official test to assess that. So what they have actually done here is they have compared the population, the entire population of vaccinated people, to that population of unvaccinated people who got COVID and were sick enough to get medical care. And by doing that, you then get a result that is not at all surprising, and which is that, okay, those people who had COVID and were sick enough to seek medical care as a result of it, or you know, coincident with it, are more likely than the entire population of vaccinated people, which includes lots and lots of otherwise healthy people, to end up in the ER or hospitalized or death, dead. I'm trying to think of an analogy that would explain just how insane this comparison is. And I mean, I, I sat with this paper for a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's extraordinarily badly written. And it's like, really, we said this last week too, I think, or a couple weeks ago, like, if a, like, obviously, this is a kind of paper that none, no student of ours could have submitted to us. But if a student of mine had submitted a paper with uh, figures like this, I would have told them they needed to fix them, that I would not even assess it like this. I mean, it, it, is, it is that bad. The labeling, the lack of labeling, the, you know, the lack of clarity, it is that bad. But even, you know, getting beyond that, okay, and saying, okay, what... The science communication is really bad. Maybe the science communication is really bad because they kind of don't want you messing about and knowing what's going on. Or maybe it's just they're just really bad at science communicating. And the editors of the journal were sleeping that day. Who knows, right? But the science itself, the setup of the study, 
the how would so we have a question we have a hypothesis they don't set it up that way of course but i'm imagining that their hypothesis was vaccination is more protective than previous covid infection in uh, against er visits hospitalizations and deaths and maybe they also had that hypothesis for um future infections of COVID. i don't know but those those were the four measures that they were looking at and uh note too that with regard to um e even though they didn't include a lot of people who are unvaccinated and have had COVID in this in this analysis um they still have a result that shows a greater uh, greater protection from uh, future COVID infections uh, from natural immunity rather than vaccination. So in that way, like this paper is coincident with the Lancet paper, but it's the other stuff that is remarkable because I, I basically guarantee you this is going to be a paper that gets trotted out over and over and over again to demonstrate uh, the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And it does nothing of the kind. Well, it is designed to fail. It's impossible to say it's intentional, but it appears intentional. If what you're describing is accurate, the non-comparable nature of the two groups yeah. is so extreme. It's like if you wanted to comp if you wanted to say, well, okay, you know, let's say that your country was at war with another country, and you wanted to figure out, you know, the way they did during Vietnam, right, um, what your casualty rate was. Right. And the answer is, well, we've got records of all of the people in our military. Uh, so let's just see how many of them have been hospitalized. And then how are we going to get how are we going to figure out how the enemy is doing? Well, let's go check our hospitals and see how many of their soldiers are in our hospitals. And we'll see, you know, whether the injuries are more severe. And it's like, well, you check the hospital. Right. Yeah. You yeah. went to a population that had, yes. Yes. You, you know, had been hit. And OK, so, you know, it, it, there's a lot. There's other smaller problems here. Like they don't even start counting they, and you know, they say, oh, well, it takes a while for immunity to to happen. And so we're going to start counting a month after vaccination or a month after um, COVID infection, which, of course, will guarantee that you miss some of the more acute vaccine injuries as well. Yeah. Right. Not all of them by any means, but but the ones that happen fast are going to be totally missed by this. Um, but but I, but I think. I think that is a decent analogy, and I don't think there's a perfect one. Like, it really is, but I, it would be useful, I think, for us to come up with as many ways of describing this as possible. Like, you've got, you've got a population, just pretend these numbers are even for the moment, just for, for ease, even though they won't be. You've got a population of 100 people, 50 of them are vaccinated against COVID, 50 of them aren't, okay? And some, some scientists come in and say, we want to figure out if the vaccine is actually protecting against future, against COVID infection, against hospitalization, against ER visits, against death. Obviously, what you want to do is you want to compare the 50 people who were vaccinated to the 50 people who weren't. But the people who have come in and have decided, okay, we want to figure out the answer to this question, it turns out don't have access to some of the 50 people who weren't vaccinated because they weren't vaccinated and therefore they weren't seeking that sort of medical intervention. Well, what do we know then? Okay, some people who ended up with COVID, and this wasn't quite perfect, so that sort of assumes that the entire background rate is that everyone's had COVID, I guess. Um, some number of the people who end up with COVID who aren't vaccinated are 
sick enough that they get medical treatment. Okay, cool, we'll take those. We'll compare those people and let's call it 10, 10 of the 50, that's high. 20% of the, of the people who didn't get vaccinated end up with, and who have COVID end up with it bad enough to seek medical help. No way it's that high, but let's just keep it that way um, for ease of, ease of numbers. You've now got 10 people that you're comparing to the whole 50 over here. And those 10 people have already been selected for not doing very well in the face of this disease. Is that because of something else? Well, the authors of the study will say, no, we try to control for that. Well, maybe, but you didn't control for everything, did you? And the fact is that you pulled from a small sliver of the population that you claim to have pulled from, a small sliver of the population, and the vast majority of us out here who are not vaccinated against COVID and have had it and did just fine and never went to the hospital to get tested aren't represented in this comparison. Therefore, the comparison is not legitimate. Okay, I wanna come at this. The degree to which this failure to science properly. I, I, had, not, I had not shared this with no, you. No, yeah. it's so stunning yeah. that the point is this, is this is malpractice. It's not only malpractice, you know, it's one thing, maybe you suck at science and you would propose such a thing. Maybe you'd get to the point of running such a study, but the idea, this is a peer-reviewed study and nobody caught the fact that this is, you're not, you can't do this. And the point you can't is, do this. look, there is a distinction. We used to talk about this a lot uh, as professors to our students. There's a distinction between two kinds of error, right? You've got random error and you've got systematic error. And it sounds like systematic error would be better, right? because random error, who knows what's in there, right? But in fact, the point is random error is okay. You can deal with random error by having a larger data set. Mm -hmm. It will swamp out the error. The signal will overwhelm the noise. And big data set here, like random right. error is gonna be okay. Right. Yeah. Systematic error, where you have a bias in the direction of, well, you know, who, 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 pray tell, who was in their natural immunity category? Uh, people who were sick enough to go to the hospital, right? And, and that yes, is, so that's, that's a, let me just, let me just make sure I'm being very, very careful here. I don't know that they were hospitalized. People who were sick enough to end up with a positive COVID test that was in the system. Right. Okay. And so they might have, they might have, been in the hospital for something else they like you know there, there's going to have but, been some number of people who just had it latent and actually the COVID didn't have anything to do with the fact that then they got hospitalized for something else right you've got a spectrum right. of people all the way from uh went to the hospital and died of COVID to you know asymptomatic right right and the point is if your sampling method excludes anybody who was asymptomatic and therefore there wasn't a test or whatever Right. And, and explicitly will not exclude anyone from the vaccinated group. Right. No so, one. Yes. I, I don't know how to make it obvious how bad the the bias in the systematic bias in the study is and how much it means that there's actually just nothing to read in the tea leaves there. Once you've got a system that is systematically biased in this way, the point is it's just simply invalid. Right. Yes. You're not there's no recovering it. And, you know, we see this in we see this kind of error. And it all, you know, just like with your bank, if your bank makes a dozen errors and half of them go in your direction, maybe there's just incompetence at your bank. If your bank makes a dozen errors and they all go in the bank's favor, then whatever the mechanism underlying it is, the point is it's an unfair bank. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that right there is a distinction between if half of them go in one direction, half in another, or, you know, even if it's like nine, 
eight four, maybe it's random error. Right. But if they all go in one direction, at some point you have a stronger and stronger indication of that systematic error, and you're owed your money back. Right, and you know it's it's a testable model going mm-hmm. forward. Does you know does the slight bias in your favor and the errors reverse? Then right. that's a random phenomenon. If it just gets more and more biased in the bank's favor, that tells you what's going on. But we've seen so much monkey business, and it all goes in the same direction, right? Always. You've got the studies of early treatment drugs like ivermectin. Mm-hmm. which have lots of cryptic ways, especially in the most recent ones, the ones that have been so highly touted. You have the systematic mechanism for underdosing those who are most vulnerable to the disease mm-hmm. by capping the dosage, you know, uh, for at, at 90 kilograms. So it stops being uh, uh, scaled to, to uh, body mass, right? That is a systematic error introduced, designed to make the drug not look uh, effective. Also, the crazy way that you know, whether you were vaccinated or unvaccinated and therefore your outcome as a result of, uh, you know, um, in an all-cause mortality. If you count people who've been vaccinated but haven't gotten two weeks out from their vaccination date as unvaccinated, you systematically bias these studies when the point is all you really care about is somebody who's deciding whether or not to get injected is do my likely does my likelihood of making it go up if I get it? And the point is that includes the two weeks right after you got it. If you're, if you're more vulnerable for two weeks and then less vulnerable after, then the answer is the result in terms of vulnerability is an integration of those two things. You can't systematically exclude it. So what we see is again and again, I would call this a study not designed to be read. Mm-hmm. Right? It's well, a, and that's actually completely consistent with the, um, like, I, this is going to sound like hyperbole, but I think I've never seen figures this bad. Like, it, 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 it is stunning. And within the paper itself, they confuse themselves, and they're talking about the wrong parts, of, and they're like, you've got like 87 authors now, it's more like seven or something, but you know, you've got a bunch of authors on this very important paper, and you, you couldn't even label your figures much less accurately. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, I think I think it was designed not to be read. And also, in you know, in the original, most of the figures are even in the supplementary materials; they're not even in the paper. Um, those, once you find them and figure out what they actually mean and put it together, are actually readable. But the one that's in the paper is like tiny, and you have to like expand it, and then it's kind of fuzzy. You're like, what is going on here? So. A paper designed not to be read yes. is a paper that will cause busy academics, journalists, whoever looks at it, to look at it and say, it looks like a scientific paper to it's me. It's got numbers. Read the abstract. Okay. Yeah. I guess this is what it means. Oh, they used a matched cohort. That's oh, good. Oh, matched cohort. Yeah, that's good. I know what that means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, so anyway. Well, no, let me just like, matched cohort is fantastic. Of course. Because, you know, like, so, you know, when you were trying to compare two populations, you can be like, okay, we got mm, these people over here and you got these people over here and let's just be like, are they different? Or you can say, okay, we have, we're, we're sampling from the entire population over here, A, and the entire population over here, B, and but the comparisons we want to make are actually one-to-one. We're going to do individual level comparisons. And so we're going to control as much as possible for the kinds of differences between people that might matter for the purposes of this study. 
And so that also allows you, if you have, you know, a population A that's, you know, a third bigger than population B, like actually we're just, we're going to compare these two and we're going to match them person to person and we're going to, we're going to see what we get. But, um, but, but that requires that you actually pull from the entire population that you're claiming to pull from, which so they did not do. What my point is, there is a mechanism for introducing things that flatter somebody with a little knowledge, right? Not mm. somebody who's completely in the dark about statistics, but somebody who knows enough to know that matched pairs would be a good thing to do or matched yeah. cohorts, yeah. right? And so the point is, oh, I get a gold star for knowing what that is. In fact, I'm going to put it in my article, right? Oh, they used a, you know, mm. a matched uh, system, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, the, the point is, this is a mechanism for getting people to turn down their skepticism because once you've been flattered that, you know, these course and statistics that you took prepared you to say a little something about the statistics they used in their analysis, right? You feel good about this study. You're rooting for it. And you feel like, oh, and they know what they're doing. Oh, good. Right. Oh, good. Finally. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's even better than it might have been, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the point is, no, it's garbage. And the real question is, anybody who thinks that peer review has a value has uh, a lot of explaining to do Yes. when a paper that actually... You know, there's one in the uh, the earlier ivermectin literature in which they literally reversed the two groups, right? They concluded that ivermectin had no value because they had simply swapped data sets between uh, treatment and control, right? It's like, you can't get a worse error than that. Yeah. So anyway, the idea of if peer review had a value, which it doesn't, but if it did, that value would be in finding obvious errors in papers, which those who have tested peer review have discovered actually it's not effective at. And very often it introduces errors that yeah. weren't there in the first place. Yep. So anyway, yeah, this is, uh, this is mind blowing. Um, I still, I'm hoping that at some point the absolutely correct analogy will dawn on one of us. Mm -hmm. um, but you cannot sample from those people who have triggered a medical record. That's not the same thing as we vaccinated a bunch of people and therefore have all their records, you know, irrespective of anything else. Yeah. I mean, you've, yeah. So but I'm just going to say it and again, probably very much the same way I've already said it. But the question they're trying to address is, does vaccination or previous infection protect you better against future COVID infection, hospitalizations, visits to the ER, and death? Great question important question, a question that we need answers to. Absolutely. The way to answer that question is to look at people who were vaccinated and people who were not vaccinated but have had COVID, which frankly, in that second set, people who were not vaccinated but have had COVID, that's almost everyone who's not been vaccinated at this point because almost the entire world has had COVID at this point. There may be a few people who still haven't, but put that aside. What you cannot do in comparing those two groups is say, okay, we'll take all of group A, vaccinated group, and we'll take a subset of group B who got into the health system with a positive COVID test. And just like, I would ask our audience to consider, vaccinated or not, when you did have COVID, because you probably did, and maybe you've had it twice or three times or five times, right? When you did have COVID, did you go and to the ER and get a test? Did you go to your doctor and get a test? Did you, or did you not test at all, but were just so certain because you lost your sense of smell? Or did you take one of the home tests that the post office was sending out to people for free for a while, right? 
chances are that you did one of those other things. And if you did end up with a positive test that was in the health system, again, vaccinated or not, my prediction is, and this is just not a risky prediction, so that's because you were just that sick. Yeah. As opposed to, oh boy, okay, God, it finally happened. Okay, I got, you know, I got to, I got to treat this. I got to sleep. I got to, you know, I got, got to get better. I'm going to do that at home. I'm certainly not going to go to the hospital where there's a bunch of sick people and where I might get sicker. All right. I want to push back on one thing. Okay. It should be important to study the question of um, which of these things is more protective, right? The vac the so-called vaccine uh, or prior infection. I mean, I think we know the answer. Well, we do, but yeah. it should be important. But in some ways, we have a holdover idea that it is important from a period in which we believed much more strongly in the idea that these things actually prevented people from contracting COVID. The idea that what you are really doing is compounding the risks of the two things and you are not choosing between them because getting the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting COVID. And maybe there's a complex story in which it affects what kind of COVID you get. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, but the point is, it should be important, but it isn't. Right. What we have is a very damning video in which a much younger Anthony Fauci says, you know, of course, natural immunity is better than any vaccine. Everybody knows that. Right. That's effectively what he says in that clip that circulates. And the point is, OK, yeah, we all do know that that is the natural order of things when it comes to uh, to viruses. Mm -hmm. um, but. In this case, what we have is a confusing situation in which it really isn't clear, A, there's all the shenanigans that have been played with, you know, you're unvaccinated until you've been vaccinated for two weeks, and therefore, which category were you counted in? There's all of this stuff. And so really the point is... If you died a week after being vaccinated with COVID, that might have been a COVID death. Right. And yeah, um, exactly. So the, um, the right thing to do at this point, given the... I believe, uh, artificial complexity of the picture, right? Where we are given information mm -hmm. that's hard to parse. You, you know, oh, that person died unvaccinated. No, they were vaccinated. They just weren't two weeks post-vaccination, right? If they're going to play those kinds of games, the only game in town here really are measures that are ungameable, right? Like all-cause mortality, right? You're in category A. Did your all-cause mortality go up, right? That tells you, I don't need to know the mechanism, right? What I need to know is that this did or did not benefit me from the point of view of staving off death, right? It's a simple measure. And because it's a simple measure, it is much harder to game. And yep. uh, anyway, I think that that's where we are in part because, as we have said multiple times, science is the most powerful way for figuring out what's true, but it's a fragile mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. It requires that you do it right. And when there are so many people with so many perverse incentives to do it incorrectly, to reach conclusions that are rewarding because somebody wants to, you know, have a paper to wave, right? The point is, no, it's not going to work. Science doesn't work under those circumstances. You need people who actually have the, as their highest priority, discovering what is true, whether or not it flatters their preconceptions. And uh, we're just not in that environment. We're in an environment of endless scientific sophistry. That's right. Let's, um, let's just say a few things about stigma and shame. Oh, good. Um, no, really, actually. And I think there is a segue here, which I didn't, I didn't see, which is that uh, 
one of the very few, I think, uh, silver linings um, from the public health response to this last three years has been that people are more aware of the risk that they're putting others at when they walk out into the world while sick. Yep. And uh, it is, it is, it, it got ridiculous for a while. Like there were there were moments I remember <clears throat> being in like a restaurant and having something stuck in my throat and being like, oh my God, must not cough because I will get the look of death from every other person in this restaurant, right? Uh, and so, you know, there, it, like with everything, it can be taken too far. But should there be a stigma against you taking your productive cough out into the world and into other people's spaces? Yes. Yeah, there should. There should. And should, you know, could people use shame to help create that stigma? Yeah. Now, will there be things that we might be interested in shaming people for, in having stigmas about now, that will change over time? Might it turn out that, uh, that we weren't right about things? Of course. Yes. So the amazing Lionel Shriver uh, wrote a piece uh, this month in Unheard, uh, called Western Societies Built on Stigma. Here's just one little, uh, one little excerpt. My point being that stigma isn't always bad. It can attach to particular conduct for good reason. Collective disapproval is a powerful tool for encouraging behavior that's in the collective interest. More recent campaigns to remove the stigma clinging to overtly destructive conduct are therefore questionable. That includes the crusade to embrace fat pride, which wages a two-pronged war on conventional assumptions about both aesthetics and health. So, you know, spot on. She's she's so good. <laughs> I just I haven't I haven't read many of her novels, but I've been um, reading a number of her essays lately, and she's just incredible. This is again Lionel Shriver, uh, who yes changed her name apparently as a, like a fifteen year old uh, because uh, even though she never thought she was a man, no, uh, but was uh, tired of being sort of associated with girly stuff. Uh, so. Uh, and she and uh, so she talks a lot in this essay about um, about fat shaming. Um, it puts me in mind too of the thing now that people say kink shaming, right? And um, and I was going to show, but maybe it's better that I don't. Um, an online commentator uh, who is fairly well known um, said said this this week. Well, um, th so there's a move to normalize autogynophilia. Auto autogynophilia being broadly, um, I, I hope I get this exactly right, but basically the condition in which a man basically gets off social, uh, sexually on, um, on the idea of being a woman. And um, he can enhance that sense by dressing up as a woman. And it has been proposed, I think it was at Ray Blanchard, uh, who first um, introduced this term to um, to all of us, and who proposed that this is actually one of the things. Um, this is this is one of the things that is what modern trans is, right? Is that these are actually autogynophiles um, who don't who, who don't actually think that they are women, but are um, they get off on it? They're getting off on it. They're enhancing their erotic lives by doing this. So this week it was revealed that Leah Thomas, the swimmer dude who beat all those women at swimming because when he'd been swimming as a man, he 
wasn't beating men, and so he started swimming as a woman, because apparently you can do that now. Um, it was revealed that he was, he's been active in a bunch of autogatophilia um, forums online. Uh, and, you know, at one level, I, okay, like, whatever, he was still cheating. Like, it, I, I, don't, I don't know why we care, really, like, how he got there, but he shouldn't have been swimming against those women in a competition. And by doing so, he was cheating, and it made the entire competition um, not a competition. Um, but we have this... Um, this online commentator saying it's perfectly legitimate to debate the fairness of male to female trans folk competing on female sports teams. Shaming hashtag autogynophilia, however, is unfair. AGP, autogynophilia, appears to be simply another atypical sexuality that people do not ask for and cannot change. Now, the same person, I should say, has made similar arguments about pedophilia. Yep. Um, so obviously, obviously in this case, you can make analogous claims like, we just felt like raping people. Can't change it. Like, he's just kind of a rapey guy. And obviously we can't let him do it, but you don't want to shame him. You can't change it. It's just who he is. What exactly is a kink? When did kink get to become this thing that we're like, a oh, protected category. a protected category? Yeah. A kink. Yeah. What the actual hell? What is what is going on here? And and furthermore, why is it that kink is like elevated to this protected category? That's exactly right. And anytime there is any implication of shame or stigma that can be dismissed and the person who is using it or is in any way alluding to that being useful as effectively an evolved strategy by which to allow all of us to live together in peaceful harmony that's the thing like oh you can't well now i can't talk to you you're kink shaming you took that protected category which never should have been protected at all and you used a technique that we're not allowed to use we don't shame people well actually you know what we, we do, and we have. And as Lionel Shriver writes about, she's specifically writing about stigma and not shame, but they are closely related. And as she points out in this piece, Western society is actually built on this. This is, this is how, how we enforce social norms, is by stigma. Not entirely, not the only way that we do it, but it is one of the ways that we do it. So I haven't read the piece. Yeah. Um, it is... 100% obvious from an evolutionary perspective that that shame and stigma are evolutionary adaptations. Right. There is something to be concerned about in the weaponization of these things. Of course. Right? I mean, it, like we, we, we all remember all of us who saw it, the Game of Thrones scene where, you know, the horrible queen Cersei, Cersei? Yep. Um, uh, is, you know, is, has her walk of shame and she's naked and she's being pelted and such. And she's done something horrifying. I don't remember what, but it still feels appalling. Right. Um, yeah. I and, don't know what to do with that one yeah. because of course the character is so morally compromised right. to begin with, but nonetheless, look, we were all shamed. Those of us who did not want to get these so-called vaccines were all shamed. That was weaponization of yes. an evolved trait against people who were actually just looking out for their own medical well-being. And yep. um, anyway, obviously that's not legitimate. But the idea 
that shame itself is invalid is preposterous. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I didn't read this article, but my sense is, never mind Western civilization, mm-hmm. right? Human society is yep. founded on shame. And the mm-hmm. I, I saw the same tweet that you did from this a uh, very troubling person who would defend pedophilia mm-hmm. and is now defending autogynophilia yep. uh, as immutable. The person didn't ask for it. So who are you to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> a, there is an assumption built into this. And yes, I'm sure there is a whole shoddy literature that will be used uh, to uh, pretend that this is actually the result, uh, an empirical result. But the idea that you're desires, your kinks, whatever, are not sensitive to whether or not they are viewed as shameful, whether people whose shame causes them, you know, I mean, look, we've, we've, you know, we've now had a uh, secretary of nuclear waste management who was a pup handler, which is obviously a uh, kink involving something very closely psychologically related to bestiality, right? I'm I'm super comfortable shaming pup handling. Right, pup handling. And the point is pup handling is presumably the gateway to uh, actually getting sexually involved with animals. So whatever, the point is, there are biological reasons that bestiality is viewed as shameful. Should we be playing with that boundary, right? No, we should not be playing with that boundary, right? We, likewise, we can say exactly the same thing uh, with respect to incest. You know, could you make an argument for tolerating incest in cases where you're not going to find any deleterious recessives that get doubled and cause birth defects? We shouldn't be playing with this boundary in the first place. The point is the... So, so I mean, so the argument will come back like, well, but the boundary is inherently fuzzy because you know, incest is an easy one to describe the border being fuzzy. Like full sibs, no. You know, second cousins, oh, mm, right. So, you know, where where is the boundary? And right. that's going to differ by situation and culture and, you know, opportunity. Honestly. But you and I used to teach all the time that where yeah. is the boundary is not a valid argument against a principle. Yes. Right? And yes, so- but, but you seem to be arguing about, you know, should we be playing with the boundary, which suggests that you can see that you can find the boundary. No, my point is like everything else, you know, how much, you know, how close to the cancer would you like to get during the surgery? I'd like to get far enough away from it that you didn't miss any. Yeah, yeah, take take, take it all out. Where should we have the boundary in our, you know, tolerance for incest? Uh, Really far away from incest, right? Really far away from any place that it has impact. You know, how free should we be to uh, play with sexual violence, you know? Not really free at all. I no. really just don't want to see it legitimized. Mm-hmm. You know, pedophilia, huh? Uh, you know, how young is too young? Uh, well, how about just stay the fuck away from people who are too young for you and let's talk about what hard boundary we should leave in the law and what kinds of really serious penalties we should inflict on people who violate that, uh, that age uh, restriction. You know, this is... It's obvious. The point is, what is important is the functioning of civilization and the protection of people. And the way you do that is you figure out where the boundary is far enough away from the intolerable behavior that there's no danger of crossing into it, right? And so anyway, I'm not interested in hearing about um, the problem of shame. Yes, shame misapplied is bad, right? 
yes, yelling, if it's too loud or in an inappropriate context, is bad. Uh, yes, skipping a period too long between meals is bad. But the point is, none of these things are inherently bad. And people are just it's sophistry all the way down. Mm -hmm. They are taking instances in which something is misapplied and using it to invalidate the whole category because there's something they want to do. And in, you know, in this case, it's, you know, something that gets them off, but it's not, civilization is not theirs to screw up. Yeah. No. And, uh, to the degree that a lot of a lot of these arguments, like you know, it appear autogynophilia appears to be simply another atypical sexuality that people do not ask for or cannot change, that sounds like a kind of libertarian argument. And uh, there will there were people, and there will be people who should have said, well, you know, who could it harm? You know, a, not our responsibility to figure that out, but b the number of inroads being made to protected women's spaces with the argument that some tiny minority of, in this case, um, people engaging in sexual kink, that it's their rights? It's the tiny number of people over here with sexual kinks who, oh, by the way, all happen to be men, get to override the rights of, oh, half the human population. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. Nope. I think we're done. Like, this has got to stop. It's got to stop. And somehow we need the proper tools to talk about what's really going on. Because undoubtedly, there's a parameter in here that should be called reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Right? Where it may be that, I, I bet it isn't even any genetic predisposition at all. My guess would be it is the accident of early experience that causes somebody to have some sexual focus totally. that's off. Totally. Right? Yes. And the question is, does it get reinforced enough that it becomes a fetish? And I think the technical definition is that it's somehow required to get off, right? That that's For what a fetish, fetish is. Yeah. Okay. But the idea is, how does something end up in that category? Through some process of reinforcement, where mm -hmm. some initial initial interest that wasn't yep. okay yep. has yep. been uh, fed upon, probably by uh, people making money off of, oh, let's see what weird kinks, you know, haven't been met by some supply, so we can make money by feeding them, right? Mm -hmm. So you find some really fringe stuff, and you feed it, and you make money, and then the point is, okay. You, you might even create it. Right, but then... Okay, you've now reinforced A, the idea that it's normal. Yes. You've reinforced B, the person's sexual focus on this thing. Mm -hmm. And the point is, and then some uh, pseudo researcher is going to say, oh, well, it's just, you know, they didn't ask for it. Yeah. So given that online forums and social media and advertising separately are doing all of this positive reinforcement of ridiculous behavior, the idea that the rest of us aren't allowed to employ some negative reinforcement? No, not only are we allowed to, it's our obligation. It is our obligation. You've got online and social media communities who are riling themselves up into a state of kinkery, and advertisers of various sorts who are helping if they happen to create the products that, that are related to that kinkery. And there's the, all the rest of us out here. Many of whom aren't paying any attention to this, but all the rest of us. And I think you've nailed the word. We are actually not just allowed to, but obligated to engage in negative reinforcement. No. 
No, that's not, that's not interesting. That's not good. I don't care if you think you get off on that. That's not okay. Stop it. Yeah. Now, uh, I would add one more piece to the puzzle, which my, my guess would be Shriver didn't, didn't find, but this, yeah, I mean, most of this that we're talking about wasn't in her piece. Yep. Yeah. Most of, um, the most fundamental version of shame as an adaptation has to do with the fact that shit stinks. Mm -hmm. Shit stinks so that people cannot help but be repulsed by it, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that you as a producer of same have to be very <laughs> careful about how you do it, where you do it, what yep. you do after, wash your hands, this, that, and the other, so that you do not find yourself shunned by people who will be acting on, yes, a crude proxy for a later-to-be-discovered microbiological reality of you're a hazard if you smell like that. Yep. Right. And so and shunned, shamed, stigmatized because you're literally a vector of disease. Right. Or you could be. You're you know, a vector, depending on what you're you're a vector of disease. Yeah. And the point is, you know what else it is? It's a training program. Mm -hmm. Right. The point is, if you smell like that and people shun you, you might learn to change your behavior so you no longer smell like that. Mm -hmm. You become a non-hazard to people and they might welcome you back into polite society. And mm -hmm. so the point is, that's an exact model of what should be going on here. Right. Be the non-vector you want to see in the world. <laughs> right. So, oh, uh, okay, you're applying for the uh, job of Secretary of uh, Nuclear Waste Disposal, and you want to use your platform as a, as a mm. governmental official to uh, broadcast your uh, dog sex fantasies. Is that right? Sorry, um, that's inconsistent with your role as a public official. Why don't you come back when you've got that good and cured? Right. I mean, so the, I mean, there's there's obviously a line here where that particular person, I don't remember his name, Sam Brinton, Sam Brinton, no longer in the position, not for the kink, but for repeatedly stealing handbags from airports. Is that right? Luggage. <laughs> Luggage. Oh, just it, was, it wasn't ladies purses. OK. Uh, OK, so he's no longer in the position, uh, but. There is a question, of course, about if, you know, so, so many of these things are wrapped up in an exhibitionism, which, which makes it easy. It's just easy. Like, nah, you, you showed us because you wanted us to see, and now we're going to talk about it and we're going to shame you for it. But if somehow he had been a at home behind locked doors with consenting dog people. Um, you know, men dressed as dogs. Um, I do this thing. Yep. I don't talk about it. I don't share it with you. Uh, you know, to, to what degree is what used to be the military's position on, um, on gay people in, in the military, don't ask, don't tell, relevant here? So, uh, like, it's I, I don't. only relevant in one way. Okay. which is if we don't know about it, it's not relevant to your qualifications. If you're highly qualified right. at uh, dealing with nuclear waste and we so, don't know what you're doing in the bedroom, then it's not relevant to that question. It doesn't make so it we okay, can't, though. I, I agree, but there, but the the way that you framed, the, what I was responding to was you said, like, you, you, you get that thing cured and then come back. It's like, well, you put that in front of us. Like, you just put that on full display. And for some reason at the moment half the country is like, yay, go for it. And like, you know, that's, that's part of the problem. But if it had never been on display, 
Uh, and he was actually competent at the, you know, disposing of nuclear waste safely at the federal level job that he was actually hired to do, uh, and also had this this kink um, that he actually kept private. He's not actually obliged to cure that thing. No, he is obliged to cure that thing, having nothing to do with his federal position. He's not obliged in order to perform the duties of the job. Correct. Correct. But, yeah. uh, you know... I this is ultimately the conversation that we have to have yeah. is how much yeah. is the argument that, well, whatever goes on between my ears is my business and no one else's. Yeah. How true is that? How true is it that whatever two consenting adults do in the bedroom is their business? You know, obviously I believe that to a point, but yeah. I do, I stop believing it at the point that the idea is, you know what? Rape role play. That's cool long as you got a safe word. And the answer is, look, I'm not really comfortable with how it is that we say, actually, that's not okay, even if you have a safe word, right? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to how do we deal, you know, can rape be represented in a movie? Presumably it has to be, mm -hmm. right? How is that going to be any different than what consenting adults do behind closed doors with a safe word? I don't know the answer to that question. But the question I think I do know the answer to is, is this actually a healthy process mm -hmm. where we turn, where we play with sexual violence such mm -hmm. that it becomes normal, right? right? That's not okay. Yes, both, so, assuming, a, assuming a heterosexual role play there, both people are worse off, are, both, are, 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 are going to be, and, and, and less fulfilled sexually. Less fulfilled sexually, presumably, but yeah. even if they're not, the point is the normalization of that behavior right? Turning rape into a fun game, right? Means that some people are going to get raped who wouldn't have otherwise because somebody turned it into a fun game. And then somebody who wasn't capable of managing the border between game and reality mm -hmm. got a hold of that thing. Mm -hmm. And so the point is you're actually talking about rape victims, yeah. right? You may not be talking about it in the bedroom in question, but you right. are talking about it somewhere. And the question is, you know, well, look, we do let people drive and people are going to die on the highway. So there's some level of tolerance for harm that comes from things that are productive. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the case of something like uh, the normalization of rape as a kink, right? Where's, well, where's the upside? Yeah, no, and then that's, you know, that's, that's why I bring it up here. Because, you know, no, no one is yet saying rape is kink. Oh, boy. I don't think that's true at all. That's not true. That's okay. Then th I brought it up thinking that it was new, you know, whatever it was, 15 minutes ago or so. But, you know, if phytogonophilia and pedophilia and violence, sexual violence, are all things that are somehow now a protected category, and to speak ill of them is shaming and bad, that's backwards land. Like we, we, we landed in a space where, um, you know, the conversations that you're trying to get us to have with, in this conversation are, um, are challenging. And I think almost no one will show up at exactly the same place in that, you know, yep. I, 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 you and I don't show up at exactly the same place, but you know, and, and we, and we can try to figure out where we do, but, um, but the place where we started that's not nuanced, right. right? Like that, that's easy. Like the, 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 like what, how okay is like, how free is your head actually? Yep. And how free can your head be? And, um, how free should it be if we are simultaneously trying to, uh, trying to free the individual and live in a society? 
uh, is challenging. Uh, but um, exalting kinks to protected classes isn't. That's actually easy. Well, it is. We shouldn't do that. It is the hallmark of yeah. us moving in the wrong direction. So again, yeah. I freely acknowledge that I don't know how in a free society you draw the proper line. But I would also point out that in some ways, shame is the answer here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. How free should you be to yep. use the toilet and not wash your hands? Well, at the moment, what we've got, as far as I understand it, is a rule that if you're employed in a food selling establishment, yep. there are legal requirements. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, you are apparently free to do as you like. Right. I don't really think you should be free to do as you like. And frankly, there is a informal mechanism whereby all of us are disgusted by the person who walks out of the stall and bypasses the sinks and then go touches the doorknob. Right. right. And mm -hmm. the point is that's not a law, but it does mean, hey, that thing that you just did is not okay. And shame is the way to do it without having, it, that's the extra legal way to do it, right? Like, that's yep. what we have. That's the tools that we have without having to take everything into the law, which we no one wants. Yep. It's not good for everything to be at the level of the law. Uh, agreed. And so, you know, this needs some kind of a, we're going to be here again on various different topics. Mm -hmm. But the point is, we are rediscovering an ancient mechanism. Yeah. Right? The fact that that ancient mechanism uh, gives us all kinds of evidence of how it works, right? The, the stinkiness of shit, mm -hmm. that's a built-in feature designed to keep you safe from a microbe that nobody knew was a microbe at the point that right. that evolved, right? There was yeah. no language. Well, it can't be bad for you if you don't know the mechanism of action. <laughs> hey, you sound like Claire Lehman. <laughs> and, you know, most of the Yahoo scientists who were talking about what you could and could not know during this pandemic. Yep. Right? Totally. But like, yes, the idea that we have an informal, that most... How dare you? <laughs> sorry. Well, you were doing an impression at the time. I didn't know. I, was, I have no idea she said anything like that, but... Uh, we won't go into it. But okay. uh, anyway, I do think um, we, we have landed on something vitally important. I must say everything yeah. that we have experienced yep. during the pandemic has spooked me more and more about governmental power. Yes. Right? It is not, I have not lost mm -hmm. any sight of the fact that there are certain processes that just absolutely have to be government regulated or we're in huge trouble. But I fear right. the power to regulate mm -hmm. now because I've seen what happens with it. Right. But the idea that we have a whole bunch of tools below the level of legal regulation, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just some giant gap. Whatever is not uh, legally forbidden is totally cool. Right. Not the point is that space is where we actually have to get along with each other. Right. And it isn't about the law. And if you push these boundaries, you will force it to be. So, yeah, don't. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's good. That's good. All right. I think we did it. All right. I think uh, I think we're at the end. When you say we did it, civilization is saved or, or not yet? Oh, I don't I don't think we did that yet. No. Yeah, we're not trying. Right. We'll give something we're... to do next week. <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. OK, so we're going to take a 15 minute break. And um, we'll be back with a live Q&A shortly. You can um, ask questions for the Q&A at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And, um, and also right now, if you're interested in joining the private monthly Q&A that we have, which is really fun, uh, it's a smaller group, so we actually pay attention to the chat and engage with the chat as it happens. Uh, you can ask questions for that at my Patreon right now, and that Q&A will be next week. Uh, in the meantime, until we see you next... Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside.
Be well, everyone.